This is the Anthem CDA podcast, a church in the heart of downtown Court Lane. Join us as we seek the presence of God, learn from His Word, and build lifelong connections. We hope this week's teaching brings life and encouragement. Welcome to Anthem. Open up with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to continue on in our study for the book of Mark. Why don't we open up in a word of prayer. If you guys want to, if you're brave enough, grab the hand of the person to your right or to your left and let's just pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for this amazing place that we live. Thank you for the freedom to gather here this morning to worship you, to honor your name, to glorify you, Jesus. I pray for your church this morning, God, that we would have a posture this morning in our hearts of just wanting to come and to hear from you, to receive from you, to allow your word to be planted deep within our hearts. And we give you this time, Jesus. We ask in your name that you would seal it, that by your spirit, Lord, you'd be moving in this place, Lord, that all the things from our week, all the stuff, the junk that we carried as we were coming in and the the, the struggles we're having, all the uh, confusion, the, the voices, the things that we're hearing, God, and the things that are distractions to us would just seem to subside this morning as we calm ourselves in your presence, God, and ask that you speak to us. And so we give you this time, Jesus, and we pray you'd use it for your purposes in your name. Amen. So we'll be in Mark chapter 1 this morning, but we're in, again in this series of messages through the gospel of Mark. And uh, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it, turn it on, whatever. We're going to have it on the screens too. But um, this won't be on the screens. And so I do want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Sorry about that. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start and lay some groundwork this morning before we get into the book of Mark. But Genesis chapter 1, it's a story that many of you have heard before about the creation of the entire universe. And I'm going to give you some background about the passage uh, in the book of Mark this morning. Um, But this passage we'll be reading in the book of Mark is about Jesus' baptism and everything that's taking place in that. But in order to understand what's going on there, um, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And it says this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You guys there? Are you with me this morning? Come on. 1-1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it says in the spirit, the the ruach, the the wind of God, the spirit of God was hovering. Some translations say the spirit of God was brooding, like a bird sort of over its nest. The spirit of God was brooding over the face, face of the waters. What an interesting passage, so awesome. From there, the story goes on about what God does with this formless, empty, uh, void world and what God does with these waters. And in Jewish culture, you have to understand this, um, that waters, when we refer to waters, in the Jewish culture, were a source of evil and a source of chaos. And so there was this kind of superstitious belief that the ocean and the sea and these large bodies of water is where actual evil and chaos came from. And so they were scared of the waters. They were frightened of the waters. And so there's this scene on the other end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation where John, the author of Revelation, says that he sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down and a new Jerusalem, he says. 
And then just to bum out all the surfers in the room this morning, John says, and there was no sea. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, some of you are like, what's going on, John? Like, why is there no sea? Uh, but it's not actually a description of the, the, the geography of the new heavens and the earth, per se. Um, what John is saying is that the place where chaos was born, right, where God pushed it back into the waters, that it doesn't even cease to exist anymore, that it was gone, that the sea is gone, that chaos is gone, that evil is gone. So in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, it says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And he goes into verse nine and 10. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And so there's this separation of land from water and, and from the sky, the water ab above in the Hebrew culture, and the land or the world below. There's this separation. And then in Genesis 2, the story continues about God, uh, about God gathering the ground. Like the, the word there is, the, the ground is Adama. And so God begins to gather the ground, and the Adam in the Hebrew, the dust, the dirt of the ground, and he begins to form it together and bends down and he breathes his ruach again. It's his spirit, his wind. He breathes into this pile of dust, right? And then it becomes this living soul. And so the Adama, the ground, becomes Adam and the first human being is born. Genesis 2.8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man, Adam, the first human being, whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then God realizes that it's not good for this person, this Adam, to be alone. And so it says, and so God forms out of the ground every beast of the field and bird of the heavens. The key word I want you to pick up on this is beast of the field. In other translations, it says um, uh, of the wilderness. So keep that world in mind, that he's seeing if this, war, this, if this thing that he would create would be a suitable partner for Adam, and it's not. And so he goes forth and he creates the first woman. And so that's Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3, the humans let the chaos back in because the serpent was more crafty than any other animal and deceives this, this man and this woman to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they give birth to children. Cain kills Abel. And this murderous cycle sort of continues until we get to Genesis 6, chapter 5, which says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of, his, of, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How that must have broken the Lord's heart. And the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of this land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we're introduced to this man Noah, and this whole scene with this, the ark story, and Noah and his family building this ark and gathering these animals together. Then Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, how many of you cannot wait to turn 600? Good Lord. 
In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And I want you to just lock that into your brains this morning. And the windows of the heavens were opened. And so then Genesis 1 is like undone at this point, right? The chaos that God had put in in its place far above the ground, now the heavens are open and allowed to pour their chaos back out on creation. And so creation is sort of uncreated in this moment. And it's made into this land of chaos once again, except for Noah and the animals and this ark. And it says in Genesis 7, verses 13 and 14, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind. There's that word again, beast, according to its kind. And then Noah's looking for signs of new creation because God has promised that the human race would continue through him, right? So he's looking for these signs of new creation. And so what does Noah do? He sends out this dove to go looking for signs of vegetation, signs of life. And so the floodwaters recede and Noah's been waiting on this ark for 40 days and 40 nights as it's just poured down rain and flood, flooded. And then it stops raining. There's still water covering the ground. And Noah sends out this dove to go search for signs of new life. And eventually this dove comes back holding what? An olive branch, right? This dove comes back holding an olive branch. And so this dove brings back to Noah this sign of new creation, And then Noah sends it back out again, and then this dove doesn't come back because perhaps it found somewhere to live at that point. And this is all a setup for our passage today that I want you to kind of keep in your mind as we turn to Mark chapter one, and we see the imagery going on in creation and the fall and what God's heart is in the midst of that. And then I want you to see the same imagery as we get into Mark chapter one this morning. So this is where we've been so far. Mark 1, 1, a couple weeks ago, it said the beginning. So we see this parallel from the book of Genesis already, right? The, the beginning of the gospel. So how does the, the beginning of the Bible start out? In the beginning. And now Mark says the beginning. The beginning of the gospel. We talked about this word euangelion a couple weeks ago. This proclamation about what this king is going to do. The good news of Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The Son of God. He goes on to say, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so Mark is saying, I have this new euangelion, this new good news, this new gospel. Like I'm taking this this empire word like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this empirical word gospel that was used across the Roman Empire. Uh, And we're taking this word that was supposedly about good news, even in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't. And and now we're talking about this new empire, this new kingdom, this good news, and this new emperor, this new king that's going to take his throne. And and so I'm going to use it uh, in reference to, he wants to use it in reference to a different kind of king, right? Not an emperor, not a king on this earthly planet, but what kind of king? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior, like a different kind, a new kind of king that that rules over everything. And so this is the beginning of the good news, is that this messenger is going to come, is what Mark says. What Malachi had thought was going to be Elijah, reincarnated, brought back from the dead, brought back to proclaim that that God, God himself was going to show up on the scene and that God is going to set all things right. 
And so the, the, the great hope and expectation of Israel is that they would experience a new exodus, honestly. Because if we had to, if we had turned to the book of Exodus, we could also look at the stories about a people who had been in slavery. And, and then they're brought to these chaotic waters, right? The Red Sea. And God parts it and allows them to walk through these chaotic waters. And then they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they get to the Jordan River, and what does God do again? He parts the water again. And they're allowed to enter into this promised land. And then they're exiled, and they're brought back, and they rebuild the temple. And the glory of the Lord doesn't fill the temple. And they're waiting for this exodus to happen, like a new exodus, a new creation. The, like Israel is waiting for something new, for God to set things right, to bring about the new kingdom. And so John the Baptist shows up on the scene and John the Baptist starts preaching this message and he says, repent. Like he says, change direction because God's about to arrive. Like I've been sent before him. He's about to come. Change direction. And this is the story that Mark is telling in Mark 1, verses 9 and 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. There it is again. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so there's three things, three points I wanna make this morning and keep it pretty short and we'll have communion this morning. But the first is this, is that in Jesus, God is relaunching this new creation. He's starting this new creation, this new exodus, this new kingdom that's being established in Jesus. And so Jesus goes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And so Jesus is entering into the waters, and, and some of the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke and John, they actually tell the story about John the Baptist stopping Jesus from entering into the water and saying, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. Like, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And so John says to Jesus, this to Jesus, and the ancient church fathers and mothers asked this question, much like we would today. Like, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? What does Jesus have to repent for? Jesus is God in the flesh. He's literally God incarnate. Why would Jesus need to be baptized by John? And what the early church fathers actually concluded was that it wasn't that Jesus needed to be washed in the waters. Like that wasn't what Jesus was doing. But that Jesus, by stepping foot into the waters, was actually making all water clean. That Jesus was purifying. He was setting the foundation for you and I to be purified in him through him. And so when we're baptized, we're being baptized into the same new, fresh, clean water that Jesus' own baptism made clean in his day. And so we see this launch of a new creation. We see this launch of a, a new exodus in the story of Jesus. Because just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open. And this is the same language used in Genesis 7 when God was rendering his judgment on the earth through the flood, the heavens were torn open and the chaos water came down. Like the flood waters came down. Isaiah 42 talks about this prayer of Isaiah where Isaiah's beating his chest and asking God, God, do you not see the chaos happening in, on planet earth right now? Do you not see the horrible things that the leaders and the politicians and all the people who practice evil against me and against my friends and family are doing? Do you not see this? 
Isaiah writes, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and then render your judgment on earth, that you would take care of things. And so Mark is telling a little bit different kind of story. Jesus steps into the water, the heavens are opened up, and it's a different kind of judgment that's happening, right? Rather, we, we see the Spirit, the same Ruach of God that we see mentioned in Genesis 1 that hovers and broods over the surface of the waters, and here it descends on Jesus like a dove, the same sign of new creation that Noah had seen, they begin to see descending upon Jesus. Uh, really fun fact that I found out this week, um, in Hebrew and Greek and in English, the word dove can also be translated as pigeon. Did you know that? Kind of interesting. Um, in English, like, the dove is the same species as the, as the pigeon, right? So they just have like a different coloration. So in Hebrew and Greek, you can use the same word. You can go to the temple, you can sacrifice two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so translators have just had to make a choice on which bird they're gonna use. Are we talking about the ghetto city bird, you know, or, or are we talking about like a dove, like a, a bird that actually has some significance and seems kind of sweet and gentle, right? And, and so we tell the story about Jesus being baptized and down comes this beautiful, pure white dove. Like that's what all the paintings show, right? This beautiful, pure, and it, notice that it also says like a dove, it doesn't say as a dove, right? But the pictures we see is actually a dove descending on Jesus, which is like, not what actually happened. It was like a dove, but it could have been a pigeon, just saying. <laughs> so Jesus steps into the waters, and then by his presence, he makes all waters clean. He purifies them. He doesn't just put the water somewhere else, but he actually purifies these waters, like by his very presence in the water, and then the heavens begin to open up. And so Isaiah's prayer is coming true, right? Genesis 7 is happening all over again, and then this dove, or pigeon, the spirit comes down and descends upon Jesus and the sign of new creation, this new kingdom is really alive and they see it. And so the story that Mark is telling, the story that we're gonna be talking about for the course of this whole year is that Jesus is launching a new creation. He's inaugurating a new kingdom. It's something different that they had not experienced, but it was what they were waiting for. They just didn't know what form it would come in. And so Jesus is launching this new exodus. And Jesus is taking all of the hopes and the expectations of the Israelites and the world and making them come true in how he lives his life, how he dies his death, how he resurrects again. Second thing is this, is that in Jesus, God is actually revealing his divine character to you and I. So there's this, this truth that Christians for generations and centuries have proclaimed that when we look at Jesus, we're actually beholding God. And th this is what Jesus says over and over again in the book of John. He says, whatever you see me doing, I only do what I see the Father doing. And, and Jesus says that whatever you hear me say, I only say what I hear the Father saying. He's only doing what the Father does and saying what the Father says. And so we're going to see these themes show up throughout the book of Mark. That Jesus is simply showing us what God has always been like. And the kind of controversial part of this is that the Hebrew writers, like the Hebrew prophets, the, the, the scriptures, they got glimpses of this. Glimpses. They got little pieces of what God's character was actually like. Little bits. 
And so they write them down in these beautiful passages that we get to read about this God who's faithful and a God who's kind and forgives for a thousand generations, whose very name in, in, in its essence is love and, and is loving kindness and mercy and compassion. Like we get these glimpses from the Hebrew writers about these characteristics about God. But guess what? They didn't have the full picture. They didn't have it all. Jesus was actually the revelation of who God is. And so when we look at Jesus, we don't have to look behind Jesus to try to kind of get to God, right? When we look at Jesus, we're actually looking at God himself. And so everything that we're going to see Jesus do in the gospel, we're actually seeing God do. It's him. And so the expectation Isaiah had, the expectation of Genesis 7, that God would rend the heavens and come down and render judgment, that what John says just a couple of verses before Mark 1.8, he says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. After me comes one more powerful than I. Like all these quotes that we've talked about so far about the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi, about God bringing his wrath down on earth. Yes, it's coming true. Yes, it's being fulfilled but in ways that nobody even expected that Jesus is about to show us. Like he blew their minds. But Jesus is revealing his divine character, that he is God. Notice how you see the Trinity in this very first chapter of the very first gospel written. Like Jesus is coming out of the water, the Son of God. He sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove and then a voice, God the Father, says, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see the Trinity fully represented in this passage. We see that Jesus is retelling the story of Israel. He's retelling the entire story of humanity. Um, in, in theological terms, there's this term called recapitulation. Anybody ever heard this word before? Kind of a weird word, right? Recapitulation. Uh, it sounds fancy, but it's really not that fancy. Um, but when you think of the word decapitating, what do you think of? Somebody getting their head cut off, right? Losing their head. And so for someone to recapitulate is to take all up within them, like become the head of humanity, of a nation or a people group, and then do it over and over and over and over again, to recapitulate. And so what Jesus is doing is that he's taking up the whole of Israel's story, like the, the whole of humanity's story and living it out again and again in the way that only God can do it. That's what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus, he steps into the water, he purifies the water, he has the heavens torn open like in Genesis 7, like the prayer of Isaiah, and he has the Father say, you're my son whom I love, and the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, which we'll get to next week. Um, just like Noah was out in the ark for 40 days, just like Israel wandered the desert for 40 years, Jesus is out there doing the same thing, recapitulating, like retelling, reliving the entire story of humanity and of Israel over and over and over again. And so God's showing us what God is like by doing this in Jesus and showing us what humanity can do when we rely on the power of the creator. When his spirit leads us, what is it that we are capable of? Anything. And so we see Jesus retelling the story of Israel, like relaunching this new kingdom. We see Jesus revealing what God's character is like. And then the last point is this, is that God is revealing how they, he, the Trinity, feels about you and I. Christians throughout the centuries have believed that God is a Trinity, that he is a Father, 
he's the Son, and he's the Holy Spirit, and it's super hard to try to map out for, if somebody asked me last week, can you explain the Trinity to me? I'm like, oh, I hate that question. It is so hard to try to figure out. But it means that God is one God, like a single essence in three different persons. And so they're united in will, and they're united in purpose, and yet God's God reveals God's self in three persons, in a Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sustainer. And so God is revealing how they, the Trinity, He feels about us. And so in this passage, we see God's launching this this new kingdom. He's revealing God's character in the person of Jesus, and God is revealing how He feels about you and I. When we read that section, that a voice comes from the heavens, that these broken heavens, like they open up and it's not chaos waters that come pouring out of them. It's not judgment and wrath that come pouring out, but it's rather a voice that comes out of the heavens that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then after the story of Jesus is told in the New Testament, there's this theme that comes up again and again and again in the letters of Paul and Peter and Revelation about how what is true of Jesus is true Uh, and is becoming true about you and I. Ephesians 1 talks about how before the world was created, God predestined us to be adopted as God's children, to be seated in heavenly places with the Son. Ephesians 2 talks about how we are all adopted and given the same divine name. Colossians 3 talks about how our lives are hidden in Christ with God. The book of Revelation says that we are actually enthroned on the same throne that Jesus is, which sounds like heresy, but it's in the Bible, I promise you. And the story of Jesus tells us again and again that what is true of Jesus is true of you and I. That whatever is true of Jesus, God in the flesh, can be said of the people of God, you and I. I. But remember, Romans 10 says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so very harshly, like we often throw around terms like, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. Well, the reality is you are not a child of God until you've called upon the name of Jesus. He adopts you at the point that you call him father. That you believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You become a son or child of the most high God. And so we're not children of God or the people of God until we found ourselves humbled before him and acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. And so when we read in the story that the heavens opened up and this voice came down saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. How many of us need a voice telling us that this morning? How many of you need to hear that voice? Some of us, we wish it were our fathers who would have told us that. Our earthly fathers, you wish they would have said that to you. I'm pleased with you. Maybe you grew up in a generation where they didn't say mushy things like that. Maybe they just said harmful and abusive things and said, or maybe those fathers weren't around at all. Maybe it's somebody in our lives that we admire and that we love and that we would just melt if they would say, I'm pleased with you, you actually make me happy. And here we see that God says this to Jesus. And Jesus, who is recapitulating all of humanity, we can trust and we can believe that the same voice from heaven is actually speaking to you and I this morning. You are my child whom I love and whom I am well pleased with. If you have called upon my name as the Most High God, you become the child of God whom he is pleased with. 
You don't have to earn that place. He's pleased with you. And it's that voice that we need to tune our attention to this morning. That we need to hone the antennas of our souls toward his voice. Because there are a million other voices in this world telling you something very different this morning. You suck. You're not worth anything. Nobody loves you. You make me sick. Like, I'm hardly pleased with you. These are the voices that we hear constantly. And our attention spans actually gravitate to those voices, don't they? We begin to believe those lies and hear those voices and we begin to take them to heart and believe that we aren't loved. That he isn't pleased with us. And so what do I want to invite you to this morning? To tune your attention to his divine voice. To hear from the Father this morning. A a voice that says, I love you. A voice that says, come and be my child. A voice that says, and with you I am well pleased if you're found in me. Like these past few weeks have been a bunch of laying the groundwork for the, the gospel of Mark. And if we get this right, that in Jesus, God is mashing together old and new things. That the story of Israel is sort of coming to its climax in Christ, its conclusion, like in the person of Jesus, who's going to actually live out Israel's story in the flesh. And if we get this right, then we understand that when we look at Jesus, when we're beholding the very image of God, if we get it right, we understand that the message that Jesus has come to proclaim is that you are loved. That you are called to come and to be his child and that with you he is well pleased. And if we believe this, then this whole idea of the euangelion, the good news, the gospel, can actually be good news, can it? If we actually believe this, this is really good news. It's actually news that can bring healing to a world that's broken and desperately in need of healing. This, this good news, if it's good news, if, it, if we believe it, it actually impacts our mission and our purpose as followers of Jesus. It changes the way we live as human beings. It changes the way we interact with one another. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we parent. It changes the way we are as spouses and, and as friends. It changes the way we engage the church, the local body of Christ. It changes It changes. Everything in our lives, if we actually believe that this is true and that this is good news, it changes us. It makes it so that we can become bearers of this kind of love. That we can be bearers of this kind of news, to become with Christ, seated in heavenly places, ones who can make this proclamation to the world, you are loved and God is pleased with you. I don't know which of you need to hear that this morning, but I will tell you, there's plenty of people that I talk to on a regular basis that have never heard that from their earthly fathers and don't understand how in the world a heavenly father could say that to them or what that means, because their only context of a father is the one they had on this earth that said all kinds of horrible things to them. But there's a heavenly father that has inaugurated a new way. And church, every week we talk about the Spirit of God going with us as we leave, the Ruach of God, the wind of God, that to think every morning when you get up, the breath in your lungs is literally the Spirit of God being 
breathed into you. You don't go into every day alone. You go into every day with the Spirit of God leading you. And if the good news is true, that Jesus lived this perfect life, modeled Christ-like character for you and I, died this brutal death in order to atone for and forgive our sins, raised again from the dead so that we could be empowered by the Spirit to live on mission with him by the, being empowered by the Spirit. If this is all true and the good news is legit, how many of you think it changes the way we live each and every day? At least 10% of you, that's amazing, you know? It does, actually. It changes the way you live. And it's quite the privilege to be invited into this, if you ask me. That the same words that the Father yells down to the Son, I love you and I'm pleased with you, can be said true of you and I who would call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I just don't get it. But I'll take it. (laughs) Would you guys stand with me? We're gonna close in a time of communion this morning. And before we dive into communion, Dan's gonna come up and take us into communion this morning. Um, This time is sacred that we get right now. This time is sacred. So I ask you to Close your eyes to calm your hearts and your souls. To ask the spirit of the living God to speak to you this morning. Whatever your condition is, the condition of your heart, your life, the distractions around you, the voices that you're hearing, the spirit of God is speaking another word, a better word this morning. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for each and every individual in this room whom you see, whom would not be here this morning if it wasn't for you waking them up, you breathing life into their bones this morning. And Jesus, we just calm our hearts this morning and take a deep breath and acknowledge you as the creator We acknowledge you as the sustainer of our lives. We acknowledge you as the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus, and your death on that cross and your resurrection. So this morning we take that reminder and we ask, Lord, even as we engage communion this morning, that we would not do it in a way that's as though we're checking a box, We're getting the task done, doing the deed, and then we're going home. But an opportunity to stop and to remember what you did for us, what you're offering us, and how amazing you are. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to reach out to us or see what we currently have going on as a church, head to anthemcda.com or find us on social media at anthemcda. We can't wait to see you next week.